Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, celebrating our freedom in Christ with a message entitled, Knowledge of Idols. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 6, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Many of us today are unfamiliar with the world of polytheism. But to the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, polytheism was not only common, many people had never even considered a world in which the gods did not affect every aspect of their lives. For the people living in the ancient Greek city of Corinth, polytheism was life. They'd been taught that their city was founded by a god, the god Corinthos, who was a descendant of the sun god Helios. And so the sun overhead was Helios. If you felt an earthquake in the city, it was because of the activity of Poseidon, the god of the sea. If you were healed of a disease or if you had a disease that needed healing, no doubt you visited the shrine dedicated to Asclepios, the god of healing. Instead of going on a dating website, if you wanted to find love in your life, you no doubt visited the temple of Aphrodite, a place also frequented by sailors, locals, and tourists for the temple prostitutes who were housed there. I mean, all of this activity gave Corinth an almost seedy reputation for to call a woman a Corinthian girl was to imply that she was either sexually loose or that she was a prostitute. You know, the gods of Corinth were everywhere. The city housed the gods of Egypt and the gods of Rome and the local gods of Greece. And the gods were fickle and passionate and vindictive and jealous and petty. And sometimes they were even insane, favoring one person against another, even using naive human beings to fulfill their own personal selfish desires. If you were dropped down into ancient Corinth from our culture, you would soon learn that the gods and goddesses killed each other, stole from each other, cheated on their spouses, and behaved in the most immoral fashion. And this would set the stage for how human beings acted who watched the gods and goddesses and followed their example. And so when a church of Jesus Christ was formed in the city of Corinth, it was formed by winning the people of that culture to faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, the apostle Paul writes, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, he writes, were some of you. Indeed, that's exactly the kind of culture that these first Christians in the city were one out of. In their pre-Christian life, these were the kinds of things they participated in freely. And Paul would then say to the new converts, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they were born again, and in that new life, a new lifestyle had been born in them. Once they were not the people of God, but now they had received mercy. And so we can only imagine the kind of discipleship training ministry that the Church of Corinth would have used to train new believers about what the life of Christ looks like and and what their life now entailed. Now, no doubt the basic Christian training would have included everything that we find, for instance, in the book of Romans, including the doctrine of justification by faith and the doctrine of sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit, God's purposes in election, the ABCs of the Christian lifestyle. But we do get an insight 
that the Corinthian believers received training in how to think about idols. So in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, Paul says, we all possess knowledge, and he meant here specifically the knowledge of how to think about and how to respond to the reality of idols in their city. And so today, we're going to see that Paul, in a short, abbreviated form, lays out the knowledge that all Corinthians possessed, or the basic Christian training about idolatry that all of them had received. So I'm reading 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, now notice, he assumes that they do know, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now we're studying 1 Corinthians 8 to 11. It's a section of 1 Corinthians that deals with the matter of Christian freedom. And it might seem that we're digressing from the question of freedom by concentrating on the nature of idolatry, but in truth, all Christian freedom is worked out on the basis of what we have been taught. Basic foundations of faith are the starting point of freedom. So let's review what the Corinthian Christians who lived in the idolatrous city of Corinth had been taught and the truths that they had all come to know were the truths about how to relate to an idolatrous city. And so, truth number one, they learned that the idols had no real existence. Now, no doubt Paul had painstakingly taught the Corinthians from the Old Testament. You know, ancient Israel had a long and protracted struggle with idolatry, but in the midst of that struggle, God had given them his authoritative word. But what scripture had they been taught? Well, they might have been taught Isaiah 44, 13 to 17. There, Isaiah is mocking idolatry, proclaiming that the idols are nothing at all. Listen to his description. He writes, the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it into an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat and he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, the rest of it, he makes into a god his idol and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you're my god. <laughs> That's sarcasm. I mean, did you notice the progression? First, the idol did not create the man. The man created the idol. It's the man, not the idol, who's there for the Lord. Second, if you notice that the idol is created from the elements that the human being used in a variety of ways, a piece of wood for heating his house, another for a figure that he falls down before it worshiped, and we're meant here to consider that reality and laugh about it. How do you fall down before such a thing and ask it to deliver you? In Jeremiah 10 verse 5, Jeremiah says, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field and they cannot speak, they have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. Now, scarecrows, as you know, do frighten birds because birds 
assume that the scarecrow is a real human being and so act accordingly. And so the power of the scarecrow is the power of a belief system. Such also is the power of an idol. It has power over you only if you believe in its power. If you don't, the power is gone. You want an illustration of that? There are Christians who fear the power of a curse. Perhaps they've experienced voodoo or witchcraft, and they hear that their family has been cursed, and someone has uttered a curse against them. Listen to Proverbs 26, verse 2. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. See, curses don't rest on the righteous. But if you allow yourself to be spooked, well, you have a problem. See, every once in a while, I'll hear from a Christian who has no knowledge and who will tell me that someone gave them a pagan mask or an item from voodoo, from another culture, and how this brought a curse into their home. Nonsense. You're like a crow looking at a scarecrow, thinking it has some power. It only has power if you're spooked. The same is true of all superstition. You know, it's amazing of how many Christians are afraid of a black cat. Now, we used to have one in our house. We never had problems with it. Indeed, it was an amazingly good cat for our kids. But there are Christians who are frightened by things like that or like generational curses, jinxes. They knock on wood. See, when you get mature in Christ, when you're taught knowledge, see, all of that stuff is nonsense. The same is true for numbers. Some of you are afraid of the number four or the number 13. Some believe that the number four is unlucky. See, I checked a list of lottery winners on the internet, and I found that the number four came up frequently. Lucky and unlucky numbers are nothing. When you get mature in Christ, you'll see that all of this is nothing. See, I've noticed in some high apartments, they will have the 13th floor missing Nobody wants to live there. But listen, if you live on the 14th floor, you are on the 13th floor. But all of that is silly. In Christ, none of this has any power at all. Hi, this is Ben Lowell. You know what? We're missing you. And the opportunities we've had in the past to get out and meet you face to face, share in times of worship and laughter, and the study of God's Word. So enough is enough. We want to invite you to be part of Back to the Bible Canada's The Gathering, taking place Sunday, September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us on the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page and enjoy a time together with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests including friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and many more to be announced in the days ahead. So mark it on your calendar for this national ministry event, The Gathering. More information is on its way, so keep an eye on backtothebible.ca or sign up for the daily audio mail or monthly ministry update email. Or call us at 1-800-663-2425. We're looking forward to meeting you there. Some time ago, I saw a picture of a crow sitting on a scarecrow. Now, I thought, that's me. I'm a Christian, and that's me with the idols in this world. I'm not spooked by them. I don't believe in their power, and I'm not manipulated by them. I am free. I'm sitting on top of a scarecrow. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We've been examining the basic knowledge or the basic truths that all of the Christian Corinthians possessed. 
Truth number one, idols are nothing. Now, truth number two, there is no God but one. You know, as before, when it, when it comes to the teaching of idols, this principle is also found in the Old Testament. The ancient Jews, as a part of their basic expression of faith, would twice each day recite Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is also known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, or Shema Yisrael, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not two, but one. See, at its most basic, Christianity is a monotheism. Deuteronomy 4, verse 35 says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39 says, See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is not that can deliver out of my hand. I hope you caught that. God oversees both the good times and the disasters. Disasters are not the result of a generational curse or the gods, at least not for a believer. God controls all things. Isaiah 44 verse 8 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And Psalm 86 verse 10 says, You alone are God. You know, it must have been a painstaking process to explain to all the new converts in Corinth that there was none but God. And whether they experienced an earthquake or disease or a blessing from the sky or wonderful things happened to them personally, that their only dealings were with the one true God. And apart from him, there was nothing. You know, sometimes believers are spooked by the devil. Now, it is true, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 does say that the devil rages like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But the very next verse tells believers in Christ that we have been given the power to resist him. Indeed, we can and are commanded to do it. The devil is not a God equal to the Lord our God. God is all-powerful. Satan is not. God is present to all spaces. Satan is definitely not. I mean, we could go on and on. Now, let's remember truth number one. The idols are nothing. Truth number two, there is no God but one. These were the truths that all the Christians in Corinth had. Now to truth number three. There are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, says Paul. So please notice that he's not contradicting his former statement by saying so-called Paul is acknowledging that in the culture in which the Corinthians lived, the reality of the belief system of the gods and goddesses was everywhere around them. You see, we can't live the Christian life being ignorant of the predominant belief systems around us. Unless we acknowledge these belief systems, we can't train people to understand their conversion. Now, in our culture, I would think it to be basic Christian training to help Christians understand the moral basis for our sexuality. I mean, why God created male and female and how this works its way out. But in doing that, we have to acknowledge that we do live in a culture in which many people have no idea of what male and female actually means. Indeed, there are so many so-called sexual expressions around us. That's what Paul is doing here. He's helping believers in Corinth remember that all around them are people whose entire lives are taken up in the gods and goddesses of the city and even feel it their patriotic duty to cling to those gods and to exclude anyone who doesn't. There are, says Paul, many so-called gods. Now, truth number four. 
And this truth goes beyond the statement that there is but one God. Look, there are all manner of people who do understand that there is but one God, but that doesn't mean that they understand who that one God is. But that's not so for us. And so Paul articulates the fourth area of knowledge that all of the Christians possess. So let's reread verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You know, there are a great many Bible teachers who believe that verse 6 is an ancient Christian creed, something that Paul would have taught all of his converts to repeat. Now, of course, we can't know that for sure, but putting that matter aside, notice the contrast between what the idolatrous mainstream of Corinth believed and what Christians believed. The Gentiles believed their gods were either in heaven or on earth or in the seas. But our God, says Paul, is not like that at all. He's everywhere. Indeed, he is the creator of all things, the heavens, the earth, the seas. He is the explanation of all things. And then Paul takes it one step further. Unlike the gods and goddesses of Corinth, believers referred to God not as Poseidon or Apollo or Epaphrodite, but as Father. Jesus had taught his believers to pray that way, our Father who is in heaven. Furthermore, says Paul, not only do all things exist because of our God, but we exist for him. That is, we exist for his purposes, and therefore we live for him. And then if this is an ancient creed, it all makes sense now. The second line is that there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. The first thing we notice here is that Paul calls Jesus Lord, he doesn't call him God. He calls the Father God. He calls Jesus Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul is denying the deity of Christ. For if you follow his line of thought carefully, we notice that all things come from the Father, and then he says all things come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says we exist for the Father, and then he says we exist through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a part of this are the beginnings of what eventually becomes a full-fledged doctrine of the Trinity. You know, today, as Bible teachers pour over the Bible texts that deal with the Father and the Son, they sometimes talk about the economy of the Trinity. And, and by that, they mean that the three persons who are the one God order their activities in unique ways. And so, in relationship to our salvation, we notice from the Bible that it was the Father who planned our salvation and who sent the Son into the world. And it was the Son who accomplished our salvation by obeying the Father unto death, even death on the cross. And it was the Holy Spirit who applied salvation to us by drawing us to the Father and the Son and by regenerating or changing our hearts. Do you see the distinction? The Father plans our salvation, the Son accomplishes our salvation, and the Spirit applies our salvation to us. One God and each member of the Godhead plays a unique and a distinct role in our salvation. Now, Paul is getting at that. Now, in that idea, the economy of the Trinity or the ordering of the activity of the members of the Trinity is also seen in the creation, and that's what Paul is speaking about here. The Father, he says, created all things. That's why Paul says all things come from him. But it was the Son through whom the Father created. John chapter 1, verse 3 says, all things were made through him, meaning through Jesus Christ. 
Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, that is by Christ, all things were created. And then later in the same verse, all things were created through the Son and for the Son. So when the Father created, he created through the agency of the Son to the glory of the Son. And just so we fill in the picture very quickly, the role of the Holy Spirit in creation is that he actively sustains the creation and reveals God's presence in the creation. So while we acknowledge that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are fully equal, and all three are the one God, yet we also insist that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit play distinct and unique roles both in salvation and in the creation as a whole. And that's why in the last part of verse 6, Paul says of our Lord Jesus, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. See, all of that in one short line. Paul says, when you were converted, this is the knowledge that you had. This is what you were taught. You were taught the doctrines of God and of creation and of salvation. And is this rich truth that deeply settled into their hearts that was the basis upon which all of the Corinthian Christians dealt with the idols among them. See, it's the same for us. We will know how to interact with our culture when we settle on the basis for our faith. Know your faith well, and you will know how to be free in the culture in which you live. John, this message leads me to a question. I guess in respect to almost superstition, like there's things that spook us, there's items that spook us. Do we need to be spooked as Christians, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, and, and some Christians are. Let's, let's understand that. I remember having a conversation with a believer from Haiti in which, you know, the, the whole idea of having voodoo symbols around that had real power was extremely effective uh, in this person's life, so he was afraid of them. And I think when we finally integrate our Christian faith fully, we stop being spooked by these symbols. But I would say to believers, if you have a symbol of something that's ungodly in your house, why have you got it? So throw it out. Uh, secondly, don't be so easily spooked because they're just symbols and Jesus is Lord of all. Those you know, idols, symbols, voodoo symbols, whatever they might be, have no power in and of themselves. The power is Christ. So I think we can have confidence and we can walk through life with a great deal of freedom. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. These are challenging days. Many across Canada find themselves in circumstances that they would have never imagined. In times of crisis, we often find ourselves searching for something to place our confidence in. And for many, that means a rediscovery of faith. Maybe you're experiencing this yourself. This is the reason Back to the Bible Canada is steadfastly committed to offering Bible teaching you can trust every day with every medium possible, including this radio program. In short, we're committed to remaining faithful in declaring the trustworthy Bible teaching you've come to expect. Wherever people are searching for God, we want to be there. Your support of all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry in doubt, is essential. To discover more about these ministries, to receive Dr. Newfeld's new series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust, on CD for free, or to offer a gift to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.com. 
www.cnc.org.